want you to turn with me to John chapter 2. We're continuing in the Gospel of John. Last week we looked at the first miracle, or, or I may more accurately say the first sign as, as John described it. First sign, and he turned the wine, excuse me, turned the water into wine. And that was a creative miracle. It showed, it demonstrated that Christ is a creator. And uh, as you're turning to John 2, I'm going to read John's mission statement for, for writing this gospel. He says, Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you might have life through his name. So keep that in mind as we go through the Gospel of John, that his purpose is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and that believing, we might have life through his name or in his name. Alright, so last week we looked at this first creative sign where Jesus turned the water into wine. And uh, we're going to transition from that, but let's remember that this sign was done mostly in a private uh, con context. Only a few people saw the miracle, and it was done in a rather obscure place, Cana of Galilee, and uh, it was done uh, on the third day, if you remember uh, John 2 verse 1, says the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. So now we're moving onward from this private miracle done in an obscure place just for a few people to see. And the result was that his disciples believed on him. That's what we read in, in verse 11. So now we get to verse 12, and I tell you what, let's just pray and let's just crawl through it instead of me reading the whole thing and then going back through it. So agree with me in prayer if you would. Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word. Lord, may I speak today as the oracles of God with the ability that you give that you may in all things be glorified and Lord, that, uh, that the faith of, of all who hear would not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. And Lord, we offer up praises to you for your word will never return void. And so we thank you for what you're going to accomplish in the name of Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, verse 12. After this, after this first miracle, or first sign, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Okay, well, I'm not going to spend much time on this point, but contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, Mary had other children. She was not a perpetual virgin. And so we see this, and this were, these were Jesus' half-brothers, uh, most likely. And uh, Capernaum would become Jesus' home base for ministry. He would, he would transition from Nazareth, and Capernaum would kind of become his, uh, his base of operation. And when people would look for him, they would come to Capernaum, because that was known as the city of Jesus. And, but he was not there... For many days, and the reason being, John tells us in verse 13, that the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that John says the Jews' Passover, I mean, he himself is a Jew, but uh, it could be that he's explaining this for us, perhaps many Gentiles wouldn't understand, but I think most of the early Christians probably had some idea or concept of what the Passover was about. And so it's likely that this is a geographical 
uh, determination here. That when he speaks of, of the Jews, he's speaking of Judea and Jerusalem because they had been where? In Cana of Galilee, and then he moved to Capernaum. And so uh, most commentators believe that this is kind of a geographical way of stating things. But the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If you know anything about Israel, you know that Jerusalem is higher elevation. So no matter where you're coming from, you're going to go up to go to Jerusalem. And uh, I believe there's a, a metaphor there too, going, going up spiritually. But uh, Jesus went up, and Passover was one of, you'll have to bear with me, because I'm going to have to give you some customs, manners and customs that you may not be familiar with uh, today, but it'll be helpful to your understanding of this. Passover was one of three feasts, three what they would call pilgrim feasts, that, uh, that the Jews were required to, to come to uh, throughout the year. One would be Passover, and understand the Passover, uh, there's also the Feast of Unleavened Bread that would begin right after that for seven days, and the Feast of First Fruits, but they're all kind of lumped together as Passover. Uh, the other would be the Feast of Weeks, uh, Shavuot, we know it better as Pentecost. That would be the second pilgrim feast, and then the third would be in the fall, and that would be the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, uh, Sukkot in the Hebrew where they would dwell in booths for uh, seven days to commemorate the, the wilderness wonders. And so there were these three uh, mandatory pilgrim feasts, and Jesus is coming to, uh, to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, Passover is uh, that great celebration, that commemoration of Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. That last of the ten plagues where God sent the death angels throughout all of Egypt and all of the firstborn were killed. But those that had the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, applied to the door were spared. The death angel uh, passed over those households. And this was a great picture, of course, of Jesus Christ, who would be our lamb, who would take away the sin of the world. He would be our Passover, sacrifice for us. All of these Old Testament sacrifices, all of the, the festivals, all of the accoutrement of the law pointed to the greater reality that there is a Messiah coming to save us and there is a great need for salvation. So he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, I'm told that uh, during that time, it would not be uncommon for, uh, let's, let's just give a conservative figure maybe, that a million people would descend upon Jerusalem during the, the feast time. And that's a lot of people uh, in any city. But uh, just keep in mind, there's a million people. Made, and that's a conservative estimate. Uh, a lot of what we learn, we learn from the historian Josephus, who lived during that time period. And he's a reliable source of history there because he was not a believer. So he has no, uh, no skin in the game, so to speak, when he speaks of uh, things that happened in biblical times. He was not, he's not an apo a Christian apologist, uh, in other words. So... There, there are all these people coming to Jerusalem, and, and as you might understand, there's uh, quite a lot of hubbub uh, in the city. A lot of uh, things are crowded. I can imagine, the only thing I could compare it to maybe uh, would be Los Angeles today, uh, the Super Bowl. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near that, all of that mess, but you can, you can just imagine. My, one of my friends, he, uh, he had to travel for work one time. And, and he ended up uh, in Augusta, Georgia, the same weekend that the Masters was being played. 
and uh, he could not find a hotel anywhere. And uh, the ones that he could find were just the exorbitant fees. And so you might understand people are uh, entrepreneurs and their uh, capitalism is, is alive and well. And, and so people would seize the opportunity. The hotels are all booked up. Uh, real estate's at a premium. A place to park your camel or whatever would cost more than it would at, at uh, normal times. But uh, Jesus has come to the Passover. And uh, we get to verse 14. It says, and uh, found in the temple, and that'll be the key phrase here. That's what's wrong with all of this. He found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. Okay, indulge me in once more as we talk about manners and customs of the ancient world. What is all of this about? Okay, well, this is a pilgrim feast. And so there's a lot of people who didn't live close to Jerusalem. And so they would make the pilgrimage. And they're going to need animals to sacrifice. And so if they had to go more than a handful of miles, it would not be feasible to try to, to carry these animals with them. So, and also, uh, they would inspect the animals. They would have the temple guard would have their own people inspecting the animals. And, uh, and so even if you took your sheep or your goat or whatever uh, to Jerusalem, there might be a chance that it wouldn't pass inspection, you know. And knowing people as I do, there's probably a strong chance that if you brought your own animal that it wouldn't pass inspection. Uh, I took my car to get inspected one time and, and, uh, and my tires didn't pass inspection. And then the guy uh, told me that, that, uh, that he had a family member that had a tire business. And I, and, I, and I began to suspect that the reason I didn't pass inspection is because his... Uh, anyway, so... <laughs> human nature, right? Human nature. And so... Uh, it was risky to bring your own animal, not to mention inconvenient. And so they would have the animals uh, available for purchase. This was a convenient. This was actually, that in itself was not a bad thing. It was, it was actually a matter of convenience, although you would imagine that they would probably charge exorbitant prices because they've got you over a barrel, kind of like when you're in Carowinds and you get hungry and the only thing you can eat is a $20 Chick-fil-A sandwich or a, uh, whatever. Dippin' Dots, that's what, I don't ride rides, but I eat Dippin' Dots when I go to care. And I hold everybody's bags while they get sick on the roller coaster. But anyway, so it's a captive audience here, if you, if you kind of get the picture. And also, the money changers, what's, what is that all about? Well, uh, in order, they, they, there was a, uh, a temple tax that had to be paid. All the males that were upward, you know, 20 years and older, they were required to pay the, the, the half shekel, which was a temple tax. But they were not allowed to use just any old currency. You know, most of the uh, coins would have a picture of the emperor, Caesar, or, you know, some of... And you could use your, your currency to buy a hotel room, uh, to do all kinds of other things, but you couldn't use foreign currency to pay the temple uh, tax. You had to use the, the Tyrian currency, the, uh, uh, the, temp, the half shekel, and supposedly the purity of the silver, you know, and, and I'm not going to get into all that. So the money changers then, again, provided a legitimate exchange so that the people could, uh, could trade in whatever, their rubles or pesos, and get a temple shekel. Kind of like when you used to go to the arcade. Anybody used to go to the arcade when they were a kid? That used to be the big thing. I, when I was a kid, Pac-Man was invented. That shows you how old I am. And we used to wait in line on a Friday night to stand and play Pac-Man. But you would go into the arcade, but you couldn't use dollar bills or quarters play in the arcade. You had to put your, 
your dollar bill in and then it would give you these, uh, whatever they were called. Tokens. Thank you, Brother Martin. You'll get their tokens. So that's the same kind of thing there. They're getting their half shekel, which is, would be like a, a token exchange. Okay. All of these things were a matter of convenience to help the people worship. But as time went on and as human nature is what it is, you can only imagine that the money changers probably would charge more interest than they needed to. to make. And we're not told here in this account. By the way, let me back up. If you've ever tried to harmonize the Gospels, you've probably read that all four Gospels record a cleansing of the temple. All four uh, record a cleansing of the temple. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record that cleansing at the end of the ministry of Jesus, the last Passover. John, however, he records this cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, some, uh, some Bible scholars don't like doubles, and they say, well, it must be that John took it out of order, and he put it here for his own purposes. Uh, but I believe if you'll try to do your homework, and I'm not going to do it for you, but if you'll do your homework, I believe that you'll see that there are two temple cleanses, one at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and one at the end. And John is recording one here in the, at the beginning. I don't think that you can uh, rightly divide this passage and make it fit that it was that John has got it out of sequence somehow. I just don't believe that. And uh, if you're interested in that, I'll be glad to explain it to you. So you can either just believe what I say and trust me, or better yet, you can read for yourself and, and come to your own conclusions. By the way, you should always do that anyway. Don't take what I say as gospel. Search the scriptures like the Bereans. And examine them and see whether or not I'm telling you the truth. And, uh, and I, let God be true. And let every man be a liar, even me. Okay? All right. Y'all were a lively bunch this morning. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Wake up. Wake up. All right. So the problem is not the fact that they are, you know, that they have these uh, money changers and the people who are selling the animals. The problem is the location. Notice it says he found them, verse 14, in the temple. Now, uh, this temple is not Solomon's temple. That was destroyed in, what, 586 B.C., roughly. This was uh, Zerubbabel's temple, which had been remodeled by Herod the Great. And I'm told from all the writings that I, I've read that this was a marvel of the ancient world. It was a, a magnificent temple. Gorgeous. No expense had been spared by Herod. To build this, but it had several divisions. You had the the outer court, uh, the court of the Gentiles. You had the court of the women, the court of the Jews, and then you had the temple proper. You had the uh, the holy place and the most holy place, which the holy of holies, where the worship took place. More than likely, where this uh, th this enterprise had been set up was in the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place. This was the only place that the Gentiles could go and worship in the temple. Now Jesus, uh, in the other temple cleansing, he says, My Father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Not just for the Jews, but for all nations. Gentiles could not enter into the other courts. But this was the one area where the Gentiles could come and worship. And the, the leadership and, and those involved in this enterprise 
thought so little of the Gentiles that they set up this market in the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you have ever... I can preach about these things and you'll relate to them because we don't have a whole lot of city slickers in here. We got a few. But most of us have some background from, you know, farmers. And some were city, city slickers like Tom, but now they're farmers and they, and they understand these, these things. But anywhere you got animals, you're going to have a mess, right? Because they make noise and they do other stuff too. So... We've got these animals in the house of God. A place that should be a place of worship. Where prayers should be muttering and, and quiet meditation and contemplation. And, and Jews should be instructing Gentiles how to worship God. And instead, you have animal feces and all this other stuff. And that's, that's a sad commentary. It's a sad commentary. You know, I hear people now, and I kind of chuckle. They say, well, I'm not going to churches full of hypocrites. Really? You ain't seen nothing. You should have been alive in the time when Jesus walked the earth. You think the church is bad now? You should have seen it when Jesus walked the earth. It was really bad. I mean, it was corrupt. They had all these animals in the temple. And we get to verse 15, and we meet a Jesus that, that might be foreign to your idea of Jesus. I think a lot of people, they, they, they picture a hippie Jesus. You know, he's, he's got long hair and he's a real gentle, kind of uh, easygoing, peace, love, and happiness. Let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. I think that's the Jesus that many people envision. But how about we embrace the biblical Jesus? Amen. I heard it said... One commentator said, you know, in the beginning, God uh, created man in his image, and ever since then, man's been trying to return the favor. Yeah. <laughs> been trying to create God in our image. Right? And uh, he's not a hippie Jesus. He's not a woke Jesus. Notice what he does. He made a scourge of small courts, and he drove them. How many did he drive out of the temple? Oh. All of them. That's interesting. Yeah. He drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money. I can just imagine his coins are rolling all over the place and people are diving in a swimming pool, like a, whatever, like an Olympic swimmer. And overthrew the tables. Now, I don't believe any animals were harmed in this uh, particular scene, so we don't need to call PETA. Uh, nobody harmed any. I don't believe Jesus, I don't believe that he physically abused any people. But I believe that this was a demonstration of power. This is not, by the way, this is not one of the signs that we think of when we think about the miracles of Jesus, but what a sign to behold. Jesus was not a wimp. Dare I say this, he was not a sissy. He was strong. He was a carpenter. He was used to working with his hands, but he was a man's man. He was uh, 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 an impending force here. He drove all out of the temple, not just a few. He drove them all out. And you know what? I'm glad that he did. Amen. I wouldn't want to serve a Jesus that never got mad at injustice, would you? Think of, you know, some of the left-wing, bleeding-heart liberals that want a hippie Jesus that just loves everybody and never gets mad. Well, how are we ever going to cure injustice? 
if we've got a God that just looks the other way when injustice takes place. Would you want to serve a God like that? I would. Even the most bleeding heart liberal longs for injustice to be cured. Wouldn't they agree with that? Or wouldn't you agree if you're a bleeding heart liberal here today? I'm sure I've offended you by now. But <laughs> get used to it. <laughs> I love you anyway. You don't have to like me, but you do have to love me. You are commanded to love me. We all, listen, I don't care what your political persuasions are. We all long for injustice to be eradicated, don't we? And Jesus never got angry. This is the key here, though. Jesus never got angry when he was insulted. It was never about getting even when he was personally assaulted. They said all kinds of things about him. But he was concerned about the holiness of God, his father, and his house. Amen. That's, that's what we call righteous indignation. Most of what we have is not righteous indignation. Especially not on the highway. That's why it's called road rage. I told the folks Wednesday night this, but I'll tell you in case you don't know. You know the difference between an idiot and a maniac? The idiot is that guy in front of you that's driving too slow. And the maniac's the guy behind you you can't go fast enough for. That's the difference between an idiot and a maniac. No extra charge for that. Okay. He overthrew the tables. Verse 16. Now don't go around calling everybody idiots and say, well, my preacher said you can call them an idiot. And he said unto them that sold the doves. <laughs> See, I know, I've got to give these disclaimers because I know you. I know what you will do. He says, take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. You know, I'm going to give you light Greek today. We're not going to be heavy Greek, but I'm going to give you one Greek word here. The word for merchandise here is the Greek word emporion, which is where we get our word emporium. They had turned God's house into an emporium. A bazaar. It's actually called the Bazaar of Annas. Crazy. And, and we look at that and we can laugh and turn our noses up. But don't we see preachers doing that same thing now? Making merchandise of God's people? I would say go home and flip through the channel this afternoon, but I don't want you to do that. But you can flip through so-called Christian television and you'll see program after program where the preacher is making some appeal and, and usually most of the preaching, most of the sermon series, they all, they all center around sending money, not to the poor, not to the local church, but to their ministry. To that preacher who don't give two flips about you, who will never be there by your bedside if you need him, who will never marry your kids or bury a family member, and who will just take that check out of that envelope and throw away your prayer request and deposit it in the bank. And the irony is, it seems to get worse around feast seasons. Have you ever noticed that? People say, send in your Passover offering. It's first fruits. Send in your first fruits offering. It's making merchandise of God's people. And, uh, and, and God help me not to ever do that. Not to ever do that. Okay. Verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it was written. And this is Psalm 69, by the way. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Some translations say the zeal of your house has consumed me. The passion that Jesus had for the house of God. And it consumed him to, to clear the temple. And ultimately, ultimately, it would lead to his crucifixion. 
Remember? Well, I, I want to get to that here in just a moment. All right, verse 18. Then answered the Jews, and here we could imply, we could infer it's probably the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish the, the leadership, the temple police. And they said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Now that is a very interesting question, isn't it? What, what prompted them to ask him to, to show a sign? Hmm. That's an interesting request. <clears throat> you know, when I do something that people don't agree with, they don't ever ask me to do a miracle on demand to prove that I've got authority to do what I'm doing. And it's a good thing, too. Because I'm not God. That's interesting, isn't it? They ask him to do a miracle. What does that imply? It implies they suspect they suspect that he's no ordinary man. And I believe that him cleansing the temple in the manner that he did was probably produced all in, in the hearts of the people. And uh, they said, show us a sign. What authority? Notice they're not concerned. They, they had no concern about the fact that the enterprise had, was corrupt. <laughs> the corruption of the temple was not a concern for them at all. What Jesus did, notice, and they also didn't deride him for doing that because he was, he was proper in doing what he did. But they, their question is a question of authority. Uh, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? Uh, Paul says the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Makes no sense. So, interesting. And I love this. I love the parallel between Jesus and Paul. Uh, Jesus has been asked for a sign, but he's not going to give them the sign they want. He's going to give them the sign of the cross. Dear me. All right. You remember at another time they asked him for a sign, and Jesus said, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there will no sign be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Just as Jonah was in the heart of the belly of the fish for three days, Three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So each time they ask for a sign, he points them to the cross, the death, burial, and the resurrection. What sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days will I raise it up. Here again we see the idiom of the third day. It's not an idiom, it's a reality. But uh, The third day and the, the, the miracle of the water and the wine. And again, he speaks of three days. I believe these are corollary miracles in some way I'll, I'll, uh, it's, it's thought provoking destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up now the implied pronouns here are you destroy this temple and I will raise it up Jesus did not say that he would destroy the temple do you see that he says you destroy the temple and I will raise it up the reason I brought this up uh, is because at the end of uh, at his trial what do the people say they said Jesus said he was going to do what? Destroy the temple. It was a lie. They misconstrued his words. And people do that today. All the time. And then three days. Notice Jesus. Notice who Jesus says will raise up the temple. I will. Hmm. What does that mean? That means he's God. Because only God can raise the dead. It's a statement of deity. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. 
Verse 20, then said the Jews, and again, this is, these are the religious authorities, 46 years was this temple in building, and will you rear it up in three days? Totally went over their head, didn't it? Totally went over their head. And I believe that we, we do the same thing. Uh, but Herod started building the temple. Now this was, uh, this was not Solomon's temple, but this was Zerubbabel's temple, which was refurbished by Herod the Great. And uh, it took many years. It would be many years after this. It would continue to be refurbished. It would not be finished until around 64 AD, which ironically enough is right before it got destroyed. Um, but it says he spoke of the temple of his body. I believe that just the way the Jews misunderstood this idiom, we, uh, we misunderstand it too. Some people still think of the church as this building here. We don't understand that our body is the temple of God. That's a marvelous concept. That God dwells in you. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people to go to. In the New Testament, his people are his temple. God dwells in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them. Now John's including himself here. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. I like that. Notice it, it, the resurrection made all the difference for them. And I want to say the resurrection is going to make all the difference for you and for me. The unbeliever cannot, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolish to say. I heard Hal Lindsey one time make a, a beautiful analogy. And he says, trying to, uh, trying to explain spiritual truth to an unbeliever is like trying to explain a rainbow to a man who's been born blind. That's, that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah. Trying to explain the things of the Spirit of God to an unbeliever is tantamount to a, a, a blind man trying to understand what a rainbow looks like because he'd never seen one. But they understood. Now I want you to notice this phrase at the end of verse 22. They believed the scripture and the words which Jesus said. Do you see that? They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. Alright. So that brings us to a different kind of faith. That's saving faith. Saving faith is believing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now we're going to see a different kind of faith. This kind of faith says seeing is believing. That's not biblical faith. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast, the word day is italicized there, many believed in his name. Well, that seems good, right? Sounds like a great revival. Sounds like a crusade. When they, what does it say? They saw. They didn't hear the scripture and believe the scripture, but they believed when they saw. Now, the King James says miracle. The Greek, the Greek word is samion again, sign. They believed when they saw the signs, which he did. Now, we don't know for sure if, if any of these folks were truly saved or not. But we get, some, we get a red flag here. Notice it says in verse 24, 
But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of men, for he knew what was in man. Something that might not be obvious on the surface, but the, the same Greek word for believe, in verse 23, the word translated believed, is the same word in verse 24 translated as commit. It's pistuo. So let me give you a, 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 a paraphrase. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. That's, that's, that's the essence of what it's saying. They believed when they saw the miracles. They were sign chasers. Jesus confronted this later on, you know, when the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. And remember, big crowds were following him. And Jesus said, look, you're not following me because I'm the Messiah, but you're following me because you ate of the loaves and the fishes. Amen. They were sign chasers. <clears throat> and we've got sign chasers in the body of Christ now. They go here, there, and everywhere to hear a word, to, to get a miracle. And we've seen fads come and go, haven't we? I mean, and, uh, and, and I love my brothers and sisters in the Pentecostal church. I mean, I was raised in the Pentecostal church. But, but we can't be sign chasers. You know, and I know a lot of believers who just, they, they look at all the signs as evidence that God is there. But, but the truth is that if Jesus is not being glorified, whatever's going on is, is not a revival. If, the, if man is getting the glory, God's not in it. Even the Holy Spirit, listen to me. Even the Holy Spirit, and I look forward to our teaching on the Holy Spirit. Because I believe he's a, a neglected member of the Godhead. Often neglected. Far too often neglected. But even the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, he will not speak of himself. But he will glorify Christ. So, whatever purports to be the Holy Spirit, if Jesus is not being exalted, then it's not of God. Amen. You are getting quiet on me, but that's okay. Seeing is not believing. We believe faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We believe and then we see. That's the biblical definition of faith. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles. But to him, he was just a carnival show. It was shallow faith. It was just based on the theatrical. They had a flair for the theatrical. But Jesus did not believe in them. He did not commit himself unto them. Because he knew all men. How does he know all men? Because he created them. He's the creator. You'll never take Jesus by surprise. Just in case you're wondering. You'll never take him by surprise. He needed not that any should testify of man. For he knew what was in man. Now, there's two ways we can take this. The first way we can take it is that you can't fool God. I mean, there's nothing that can take him by surprise. There's nothing God doesn't know. I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody had said to me, well, God knows my heart. And usually that's said in response to something that they're not doing that God wants them to do. I'll say, well, why are you not living for God? Well, God knows my heart. Well, he does. But here's the problem. You don't. I don't. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Amen. <laughs> the psalmist said, Who can understand his own errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. There may be things that I'm not even aware of that are an affront to God. 
Now, you may be aware of things in my life that aren't in front of God, but I might be oblivious to them. And we need God to search us and try us. So that's one aspect of it. But let's look at it from the positive, too. God knows everything about you, and He loves you anyway. That is a miracle. God knows everything about you, and He loves you anyway. And is at the core, you know, psychologists, they, they try to get to this, but uh, isn't that our most basic need? Don't we want to be understood and to be loved? That is what we want. We want someone to understand us and to love us anyway. That's what we, that's what we long for. We long for unconditional love. We long for it. From the time we come into the world, we desperately want love and acceptance and forgiveness. We, we crave those things. And we have all of those things in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows every... Listen to me. Everybody in this room, God knows everything about you. He knows every sin you've committed. He knows every sin you're going to commit. He knows every thought in your head. He knows every tear you've cried. He knows every prayer you've prayed. And He understands you completely. And He loves you with a love that is beyond comprehension. Paul said God's love is so profound that he had to pray that we be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. That's four dimensions, by the way. We live in a three-dimensional world. That's kind of a cool little thing there. But four dimensions there. And Paul says that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, I want you to be able to comprehend God's love but try as you may, you'll still never be able to understand that love. The closest thing that we have, I suppose, is the love that we have for our children. And most normal parents, and I say normal tongue-in-cheek because none of us are normal. But the normal way is for a parent to sacrifice and to do everything they can for the well-being of this individual or individuals that they have brought into the world. That's why Jesus appeals to that when he talks about prayer, he says, what man, if he has a son, if he comes and he asks for a fish, will he give him, you know, an egg, if he asks for an egg or bread, will he give him a scorpion or a serpent? And I suppose if we lived in the year 2022 when Jesus wrote those words or spoke those words, he would have said grandchildren. Because we really love those grandkids, don't we? And we'll do even more for them than we do for our own kids at times. But, but how much do you love that grandchild, that grandbaby, or that great-grandbaby? Is there anything in the world that you wouldn't do for them if they came to you? Is there anything that you wouldn't forgive? There's nothing that God won't forgive, my friend. There's nothing you've done that God, that's too big for God. God knows everything about you, but He loves you. So let's bring this home. I want us to contemplate have we done anything to defile the temple of God? And I know what some of you are thinking. No, I always behave myself when I'm in church. Well, you're thinking just like the Pharisees thought. 
destroy this temple and, you know, three days we'll build it back up. And this thing's been here for a hundred years, right? Or since 1862, the church has been established. You're still thinking with an Old Testament paradigm. But I want to ask you, is there anything going on that has caused us to defile the temple? You know, I, I would never think of bringing a, a cow into the sanctuary or, or whatever, some animal to defecate. But you and I are the temple of God. Is there anything in your life or in my life that's failing to bring glory to God? Because our house, our temple should be a place of prayer also. It should be a place of worship. We find also that location is no longer an issue. It's not about Jerusalem. Or as the Samaritan woman, uh, when Jesus talked to her, it's not about, he says the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. The next thing we need to ask ourselves is this. Have we come to the true place of worship? The only, the only way you can truly worship God is if you embrace the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you can truly worship God is if you embrace the sacrificial death on the cross, His burial, and His resurrection. And finally, can you embrace this concept that God knows every single thing about your life and He loves you with an everlasting love. Paul said this to the Romans. He said, God demonstrated His love. This is Valentine's weekend. We've all got our red, or a lot of us have got our red on. You look, you're a good-looking bunch this morning, might I say. And love is in the air. And, and the florists are hoping that they can make enough to make it through the rest of the year. After tomorrow. But God demonstrated His love. Love is not a box of chocolates. Life is. That's what Forrest Gump said. Love is not a box of chocolates. It's not a bouquet of flowers. God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's a love I cannot fathom. I cannot understand. But God demonstrated His love. So everybody, you may not get flowers tomorrow. You might not get cards. You might not get candy. But I want to remind you that somebody loves you enough to die for you. And if you would believe in them, you can have eternal life. Would you stand? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to come just as you are. Come just as you are. Bring your burden to the cross. Leave it there and receive forgiveness. Would you come?